0: Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
1: Welcome to Censored, the podcast where sex is political and politics is obsessed with sex. I'm Eva Vertnach, historian and compulsive novel reader. You can support the show at patreon.com censoredpod or buy merch like stickers and badges. Check out the show notes for links. And a review on Apple Podcasts really does help people find the show. Go on, drop us a review. You know you want to. This episode, I'm reading Martha Quest by Doris Lessing. Published in 1952, it was banned in Ireland in November 1954. This novel was part one of a series called Children of Violence. The sequel to Martha Quest is a proper marriage and that was also banned at the same time as this. Lessing wasn't super famous yet. That happened after The Golden Notebook was published in 1962. It was a radical text about gender, motherhood and mental illness that was tailor-made to annoy the censors. Unsurprisingly, it was also on the blacklist. But this novel follows the coming of age of 17-year-old Martha Quest, who lives in Zimbabwe. When I first read it, I had the notion it was set in South Africa, but it's not. Not that it makes too much difference to my reading. Both countries have similar nasty racial politics. Young Martha starts out languishing on a farm, then escapes to a hectic, abandoned city life of endless partying. She tries to navigate gender roles and racial prejudice while working out who she actually wants to be. But this is not quite a coming-of-age novel like the other ones I've covered. It doesn't feel the same as Chocolates for Breakfast or The Catcher in the Rye. The teenage protagonist's point of view isn't as intense or immersive. There's a bit more distance in the style and tone. You feel more detached from Martha than you do from Courtney in Chocolates. And it's unapologetically, unambiguously literary. There can be no mistake about that. But as we know by now, striving for high art never saved anyone from the censors. Before I get into the book proper, it's time to choose a beverage. In a novel dominated by parties of a cold, orgiastic spirit, there's a lot of drink to choose from. Martha drinks beer to combat exhaustion and hunger because she is refusing to eat. So that's a depressing choice I'm going to avoid. The other drink she consumes too much of is brandy with ginger ale, a mixture I've never tasted and I hope I never will. Sounds awful. In this novel, drinking alcohol is a pretty emotionally fraught thing. Martha drinks a lot, but knows she can't get drunk like her male peers. It's her job, as a woman, to regulate her intoxication so she can mind the lads. Like, nobody seems to enjoy drinking with their friends. It's all grim, lonely, and desperate. The spirit of the book really repudiates drink, and so do I. I'll read it with a cuppa and a crisp sandwich to hand, because there are lots of late-night salty snack binges, and crisp sandwiches are always great. So on to the usual question. Why was it banned? I suspect the censors got as far as the second page before they got the red pen out. Martha is determined to be a stroppy, annoying teenager. She's sitting next to her gossiping mother and friend, reading Havelock Ellis on sex in a conspicuous show of rebellion. So this paragraph is from page one to two. As for the ladies... They sometimes allowed their eyes to rest on the girl with that glazed look which excludes a third person or even dropped their voices and at these moments she lifted her head to give them a glare of positive contempt for they were seasoning the dull staple of their lives servants children cooking with a confinement or scandal of some kind and since she was reading Havelock Ellis on sex and had taken good care they should know it the dropped voices had the quality of an anomaly. Or rather she was not actually reading it. She read a book that had been lent to her by the Cohen boys at the station while Ellis lay like an irritant on the top step with its title well in view. I thought this was hilarious. It's so astute. There's a lot in it. You see Martha's viewpoint, the matrons and there's a distant omniscient narrator as well. It's remarkably adroit to handle all those perspectives so fluidly and give us all that emotional depth as well. It's also a direct comment on censorship and reading and self-expression. Martha is trying to goad her elders into some overreaction. They sensibly ignore her and this contributes to her annoyance. Sadly, all the censors see is a teenage girl performatively reading a famous book about sex. In their eyes, she is corrupted and capable of corrupting others by her example. Even though she's not actually reading it, she's only pretending to read it to get a rise out of people. Honestly. Throughout the book, Martha's reading is a big deal. Her thirst for books that would explain the world, that would tell her how to be, is a constant theme. It's surely no coincidence Martha's surname is Quest. She's on a journey to read her way into enlightenment. Because she's 17, she believes the answers must be out there and that someone else has already worked it out. If only she can find the right book. And sometimes, unfortunately, the right boy, but we'll get back to that later. So on page 163, she looks at her book collection and thinks this. She looked for a book among the piles on the dressing table, the table even on the floor. She wanted something which would include that deprived black child, her own fierce unhappiness, which was likely at any moment as she knew to turn into as fierce a joy. She wanted it all explained. The titles of her book seemed faded. What the print said had nothing to do with her life and, as the sun rose, Martha was lying fully dressed, on the floor, copying out titles of books advertised in the New Statesman, which had no better recommendation than their names were included in the glow which surrounded that magic title. I mean, who hasn't felt this way about books or music or art? Especially when you're 17. I absolutely felt this. I was sure books would explain it all to me. To be honest, I kind of still believe it could be why I read so much. Martha, like lots of readers, defines herself as a reader who talks about books to people. When she wants to connect with people beyond the social superficialities, she talks about reading, but they mostly rebuff her. Her male peers are sometimes frightened by attempts at intellectual conversation and condescend and mock her till she gives up. This is a really good example from page 205 when she's talking to a bloke at one of these endless dances. Martha thought it remarkable that this young man, whom she knew to be a manager of a big insurance company, should be content to appear like a buffooning schoolboy. She began talking to him rather awkwardly about a book she had just read. He answered reluctantly. When she persisted, he gave a public sigh, which drew all the expectant eyes towards him and said, mournfully, baby, baby, you'll be the death of me. Then he indicated Martha with an outstretched thumb and said, she's intelligent. This baby's got brains. And he laughed and rolled up his eyes and shook his head with a kind of subsiding shudder into himself. Martha flushed, and as soon as the conversation had got underway around them, began talking amusingly, as she was expected to do. The uneasy blue eyes fixed on her in relief, his face cleared, and she understood that all was well. Oh, well, that's awful. One of the things Martha has to deal with is the performative idiocy that she's expected to do as a girl. All the parties in this book sound like the worst, I have never wanted to go dancing less than when reading about the all-night affairs in the sports club. Martha finds she can't dance with anyone successfully, because her body reflects her deep unease with the whole thing. She just doesn't fit. And it's in dancing that her body tells the truth. But in general, her physicality is not ungovernable, like, say, McGahran's Teenage Hero in the Dark. She can control it. It isn't full of wild desire erupting in inappropriate ways. This is a much more analytical and elaborate approach to sexual and emotional confusion than in the other coming-of-age novels I've read so far. And that involved elaborate style actually made it hard to read it like a censor. Lessing deliberately resists that type of reading. Not only is she too subtle to reduce her work to a two-dimensional smutty story, I felt Lessing knew how to avoid a censorious reading. She conceals sex in illusions, in sidelong glances and emotional responses. The best example of that is Martha's first boyfriend, Donovan. She goes out with him even though she doesn't actively like him, drifting along with his arrangements because she has not learned how to articulate her own needs. Like lots of young women, she's automatically a people pleaser. This trait is so advanced that he can have this conversation with her and she doesn't break up with him. And this is from page 173. All you girls get married. You've no strength of mind at all. I really do feel that all this sex is overrated, don't you? I don't know, Martha said humorously. I haven't tried yet. But he would not accept the humor. He pressed her arm urgently and looked down into her face and insisted. Well, don't you think so? All you girls want to be made love to and really. His face faded in disgust. Although Martha had every intention of agreeing for the sake of good nature, she began to laugh and he waited until this rather strained laughter was finished and muttered bad temperedly. Women are oversexed. That's what I think. And weirdly, she doesn't get the fuck out of the relationship after that. Obviously, if your romantic partner is disgusted by your sexuality, it's best to cut and run. Martha may have read Havelock Ellis to show off, but she didn't actually absorb his theories on diverse human sexualities. Instinctively, I think she knows Donovan is queer. After this conversation, she thinks... The fact was, the thought of making love with Donovan was rapidly becoming impossible, even indecent. She knows something is up, she's just not quite willing to face it. Later, Martha is warned by her landlady not to have men like Donovan in her bedroom. And this is how she reacts to that criticism. She said rather dryly that she did not think there was any need to worry about Mr. Anderson. Mrs. Gunn's pale and worried eyes lit with malicious speculation. They met Martha's and suddenly both women began to laugh. You're all right, said Mrs. Gunn, laughing hoarsely. So there is a tacit, unspoken understanding that Donovan is queer. When I read it out in isolation like this, of course it seems obvious, but the narrative is quite multifaceted, so it's not so easy to see the first time round. I had to work hard to read it like a censor, because there's lots going on to obscure moments like this. Martha meets a big cast of characters, and she's trying to analyse them all. Thus, Donovan is just one of the many lads she hangs out with. It's easy to lose track of Donovan's sexuality when there are lots of other themes jostling for your attention. Of course, Martha's sexuality and her sexual expectations are really at the heart of the novel, Thanks to her extensive reading, she wants to experience sex as a triumphant romantic gesture. So it has to be with a man, and she expects trumpets, fireworks and emotional revelations. To be honest, Lessing is being satirical about how a too-well-read teenager thinks real life will mimic her reading. I feel like the censors would enjoy this take, that books give you notions, but Lessing isn't being censorious. She's more showing how Martha's idealism is a product of her reading, which was erratic and emotional. There's that distance again that makes this less a coming-of-age novel than you'd first think. Martha's point of view is often scrutinised at arm's length. There's sympathy for her, but the character isn't really fated by the author. I think what the censors wouldn't have liked about this novel is its careful dissection of a young woman's sexuality in a socially conservative, puritanical society. It could be read as a very close approximation to Ireland. Now, I know they banned all the alternative visions of sexuality, like new ideas from America, but they also censored thoughtful critiques of the sexually repressive traditional models. And Martha's society is very conservative, even though the young people appear to have great license. They dance all night, disavowing ideas of marriage. In the sports club, the young men are called wolves and the women virgins. Women new to the scene are literally fresh meat, howled and slavered over as they cross the floor. The relationships between men and women are both casual and emotionally sterile. For example, this description of kissing at one of the many interminable dances is fairly fucking grim, and it's from page 213. Three times Martha found herself drawn onto the veranda by one or other of the wolves. Afterwards, she had to remind herself who they had been, and kissed, and always in the same way. Abruptly, without any sort of preface, she was held rigid against a hard body, whose lower half pushed against hers in an aggressive but at the same time humble way and her head was bent back under a thrusting, teeth-bared kiss. Afterwards, he breathed heavily, like a runner, and sighed and said, "'I'm terrible, hey? Forgive me, baby. You'll forgive me.' And to this the spirit of the place made Martha reply graciously, "'It's all right, Perry, or Dougie, or Binky. It's all right. Don't worry.' She wanted to laugh at the same time she found it revolting that they should become so humble and apologetic while in those humble eyes was such an aggressive gleam. Each kiss was a small ceremony of hatred and at the fourth occasion when some anonymous youth began compulsively tugging her towards the veranda she resisted and saw his baleful glance. That's literally revolting. All the sexual contact Martha has offered is horrible. It's not just the snogging. Everything they do is miserable. This is on page 235 when she brings a bloke called Perry back to her room. He bent to kiss her and she let this image of herself dissolve and shut her eyes preparing to be lost. But the kiss persisted and its hardness seemed to demand resistance. His mouth was boring down into hers so that it hurt and as her mind remarked, he's calculating, he's testing me, she flashed awake and became conscious again of every part of herself as he might see it. She was locked in watchful resistance. He lay down beside her and began pressing her to him. Her mind was schooled in poetic descriptions of the Love Act from literature and in scientific descriptions from manuals on sex. It was not prepared for the self-absorbed rite which he was following. When he reached for her hand and pulled it towards the front of his body, it stiffened. He pulled harder and moaned, Give me a break, kid. Give me a break. While at the same time, he fumbled with her breasts. God, that's fucking awful. It's just resolutely unsexy. If a girl ever wanted a reason not to mess around with fellas, this description would be it. This passage also continues the theme of the inadequacy of reading in preparing you for life. I particularly like that sex manuals are no preparation for real life either. There are no guides to doing it, lads. It's funny that you could read this from a pro-censorship point of view as well. Too much reading really does addle young girls' minds. It leads them astray, gives them notions. Lessing could be saying that, but the horror really happens because everyone involved is dishonest and shy and afraid. The fakery is the problem, not reading, not books. And the fake smiles come from social conventions that prize virginity in women, who are paradoxically expected to indulge men. I think Irish readers of the 50s would have been enthralled by the quandary Martha finds herself in after she slept with one bloke named Adolf, or Dolly her friends end up organising a fucking intervention to get her out of it. They told her he was gossiping about their affair and that he was a stalky creep. Martha is caught in a double bind because she wanted to break it off with him, but she hated her friends for interfering. And the worst part of their intervention was that it grew out of anti-Semitism because Dolly was Jewish.
0: Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash
1: host. Racism, in all its ugliness, is a big part of this novel. To be honest, I was surprised most of the racism is against Jewish rather than black people. From the very beginning, Jewish men appear as a source of potential temptation for Martha. Her neighbours, the Coens, have two sons her own age who lend her books on politics and economy that make her restless and uneasy in her choices. Once she hits the big city, she rejects their influences in favour of Donovan until she meets Dolly. In an agonised attempt to prove she's not anti-Semitic, she goes out with him and then sleeps with him. It's so characteristic of Martha that she sleeps with someone to prove an intellectual point to herself and him. And this is from the sex scene on page 248. Incidentally, this is the first time she has sex, but she doesn't tell Dolly this. He sat on the edge of the bed, pulled off his shoes, laying them neatly side by side, and began unbuttoning his clothes. Martha lay as if her limbs had been struck by a nervous paralysis, conquering the impulse to avert her eyes, which might have been interpreted by herself, if not by him, as prudishness. There was something dismaying about these methodological preparations, like getting ready for an operation, she thought involuntarily. Then, having made sure everything was satisfactorily arranged, Adolf swung his legs up so that he lay parallel and began to make love to her, using the forms of sensitive experience, so that she was partly reassured and partly chilled, while she arranged the facts of what was occurring to fit an imaginative demand already framed in her mind. Well, that is not explicit, but it is painfully awkward. I cannot believe the censors couldn't see this as a cautionary tale. This would not inspire or incite you to have casual sex with blokes you met in clubs. Anyway, Martha and Dolly's 10 day relationship is couched entirely in racial terms. After they've had sex, he immediately remarked that the sports club crowd would be furious. We know from earlier that the club crowd didn't want to talk to him because he's Jewish. Martha then feels he's triumphant because they've slept together, and she really fucking hates him after that. The prejudice that surrounds their racial identities infects their personal sexual expressions. She's a white, virginal, young English girl and he's a dangerous Jew who seduces her. This big social narrative is as important as their personal incompatibility. In fact, you wonder if it isn't the racial prejudice that's poisoning their personal life. But then Lessing never makes it that simple. The meta-narratives do not determine people's actions. They're still messy bags of emotion making bad decisions. While Martha's major relationships are with a queer man and then a Jewish fella, the specific questions of race in Africa are also there. The role of Martha and white people as alien colonists is established at the very beginning. There's a masterly paragraph on the landscape on the third page that really set the scene for me. Lessing is describing Martha's home, a farmhouse in the countryside. The house raised high in its eminence into the blue and sweeping currents of air, was in the centre of a vast basin, which was bounded by mountains. In front, there were seven miles to the Dumfries Hills. West, seven miles of rising ground to the Oxford Range. Seven miles east, a long swelling mountain, which was named Jacobsburg. Behind, there was no defining chain of kopjes, but the land travelled endlessly, without limit, and faded into a bluish haze, like that hinterland to the imagination we cannot do without. The great declivity was open to the north. Now I don't know why, but the names of the mountains gave me the strangest feeling of disorientation. Those names are just wrong. All of it feels wrong, apart from the first and last lines of the paragraph. I can't work out how Lessing makes me feel the wrongness of the Dumfries Hills in Africa, when I know and have always known that colonists rename their conquests after home. It shouldn't take me by surprise at all, but it does. She's that feckin' good. The question of race is always there, hovering on the edge of Martha's mind and on the fringes of the text. Martha may not say she disagrees with the oppression of black people, but other characters know she is suspect of what they call the native question. There are lots of racial slurs in the book from N-words to K-words and there's one major scene where the wolves, the young entitled white men, mimicked African dancing. It's a long tension filled terrifying passage starting on page 279. I'll read some of it out so you can get an idea of the malevolence of the racism. Everyone was laughing and watching Perry who was doing his usual act Imitating an American negro singing. He strummed an imaginary banjo while he rolled his eyes and jerked and splayed out his knees. It was funny, but he had done it often before, and it was not enough. So after a few minutes, Perry let out a high quivering yell, which was immediately understood. He was no longer an American negro, he was an African. But for this, he could not be alone, he must be in a group while the banjos and the melancholy sad wail from over the Atlantic were out of place. And soon a group of wolves, headed by Perry, were stamping with bent knees, arms flexed and slightly held out, in a parody of a native war dance. Hold him down, the Zulu warrior, hold him down, the Zulu chief, they grunted and sang, while the wide circle of people clapped accompaniment to the thudding feet. Outside this circle of white-skinned people, the black waiters leaned at the doors or against the walls, looking on and their faces quite expressionless. God, it's its just terrifying. And it goes the way you expect it to. At this point, Perry insists that one of the black waiters join him and do the dance. Naturally, the poor man has no choice. And there's this tension-filled moment where you just don't know what's going to happen. And this continues on page 280. So then the waiter, in a perfunctory and hurried way, began jerking his arms and listlessly pounding his feet while he let out a few grunts. And now Perry was annoyed. He shouted, come on, damn it, don't play the fool. He rolled his big body loosely into position and demonstrated again with his intense, emotional, self-absorbed parody of dancing while the waiter remained silent, watching. And then, when Perry stringed himself out and waited, he made the same actions again. It was not a parody of Perry, a mockery. He was simply trying to get the thing over as quickly as he could, and his eyes flickered worriedly over the heads of the white people to where his fellows stood watching. This whole scene, which goes over three pages, is... It's unforgettable. Really difficult. Reading it out really kind of brings it up to the fore. It's very frightening. After all this horror, the terror of the black man, the menace of the white crowd demanding to be amused, Martha and Donovan leave. He takes her silence correctly as criticism and wants to know what side she's really on. Now in reading this bit out from page 281 I will not say the racial slurs. Lessing uses slurs but only in the direct speech of characters. She never uses them to describe individuals or groups in the narrative. And Martha doesn't use the words at all. It's kind of interesting because not all old books containing racial slurs do this. Anyway, back to Martha and Donovan arguing after this horrendous dance experience. And the white people were left unaccountably bad-tempered and rather sorry for themselves. They drifted off in groups. Martha walked away with Donovan, who had not said a word, and it was not until they reached his car that he said coldly, in a well-bred, indifferent voice. I suppose you're feeling sorry for the K-word. For a moment, Martha was silent. What struck her was the deliberate way he said it, as if intending to provoke her. And the scene had made her very angry. Also, which was worse, had made her afraid. What was terrible, she felt dimly, was the sentimental grievance of Perry and his friends. They really felt ill-used and misunderstood. It was like a madness. Not at all, she said, intending not to quarrel, but then she could not help adding, I'm sorry for us. I think it's disgusting. I thought you would, said Donovan coldly. And then, of course, he accuses her of being an N-word lover She finally breaks free of trying to please him, of being the good girl, and then it's really ugly. Now she had the advantage, and she went on, Dear, dear me, how awful, isn't it? I should be such a naughty, naughty girl to have such wicked unpopular opinions and just think what people might say. And now he was furious, for she had minced out the sentence with a really unpleasant parody of his mannerisms. This is genuinely unpleasant. I think it's the fact that she minced out her parody. Martha has ignored Donovan's queerness up until now. She's never challenged him directly. But there's a definite sense that she's mocking what little of his sexual identity he can publicly display. This verbal violence is just as nasty as the racial abuse from earlier. There's so much prejudice and hate sloshing around that all the characters marshal it to their own ends. This is not an easy society to live in, to be a good human being in. And I think that's why Lessing has so much scepticism over human righteousness as a concept. She did know what she was talking about here in relation to race. The Children of Violence series of novels are semi-autobiographical. A child of English immigrants, she grew up on a struggling farm in Zimbabwe exactly as Martha did. So she experienced this racial conflict. Lessing left Africa in 1949 to live in London. Her anti-racist stance is obvious in this novel, in which the white people are nightmarishly horrible. She was so politically offensive to the South African government that in 1956 they banned her from entering the country. One of her memoirs, 1957's Going Home, was banned in South Africa until 1993. Strict censorship was used by the apartheid regime in South Africa to suppress dissent and to underpin their government. The South African blacklist became as epically long as Ireland's, reaching 13,000 publications in the early 1970s. Now theirs included a lot more political publications – as the government suppressed communism, socialism, anti-racism, anything really. That Lessing made the blacklist in South Africa is hardly surprising, but we in Ireland should be pretty horrified that an anti-democratic country is such a good comparison for us. Both Ireland and South Africa experienced severe censorship in the 1950s, even stricter than that which went before. As an Irish person, I'm mortified that I'm looking at apartheid South Africa for parallels to my country's history. But there you are. Lessing's Martha Quest was banned during the height of our censorship fever. As I've said in other episodes, in the early 50s, the censors were banning incredible numbers of books. So it's perhaps not surprising Lessing made the list too. I suppose we should be grateful that the government didn't ban her as well. Her radicalism, though, was dangerous everywhere. In Britain, where she lived, she was spied on by MI5 because she was such an outspoken radical. If you annoy the governments in more than one country, you know you're really dangerous. So Martha Quest is a seditious book by a radical writer. But how does it fare in censorship bingo? I fear the score will be low. It's certainly not teasing or smutty and the occasional sex scenes are not at all explicit but let's give it a go and see what happens. First up, breasts. Yep, definitely tick that. Bestiality, no. Sex work, no, not at all, even though she is in the big debauched city. Racism. Oh yes, I mean, it's absolutely stuffed with racism, prejudice and the consequences of all of that. Drugs. No, no drugs apart from alcohol. Next is politics. I hope I've persuaded you that it's really political. The debate about racism, the debate about racism makes it a deeply political text in Africa. But the anti-Semitism brings the racist dimension closer to European sensibilities too. And this was written after World War II, when Europe was reckoning with the deadly effects of racial hatred that it had fostered for centuries. I think it's interesting that Donovan categorises Martha's sympathies for Jewish and black people as the same thing. So I think the transgression she commits by sleeping with Dolly really shouldn't be underestimated. We're definitely ticking politics. If there were five boxes, she'd get five marks for that. Swearing. No, I don't think she ever uses any bad language. Infidelity. Yes, one or two glancing references... The marriages contracted through the sports club aren't taken very seriously. Then there's crime. I don't think so. I don't think I can tick that one. Genitalia. No, not explicit, as I said. Then abortion. Yes, when Martha decides to marry in haste, her father thinks it's because she's pregnant. He offers to, quote, do something about it, unquote, if she wants. So yeah, we can tick that. Orgies. No, even though a number of couples fall asleep together frequently, but they don't ever seem to do anything about it. Next is sexual assault. I know the kissing is terrible, really, but it isn't framed as sexual assault just as the conventional approach at the time. I don't think I can tick that one. Extramarital pregnancy. Yes, yeah, that reference from her father to extramarital pregnancy certainly counts. It's surprisingly muted, given how conservative the sexual mores of the society are. Contraception must have been reasonably well available. Feminism. Well, Lessing herself was reluctant to ally herself with feminism later on. I think she was very sensitive to simplicity and reductionist narratives and just didn't really want to commit herself. But a key premise of Martha Quest is that marriage sucks and is a total dead end for women. So that counts as feminist enough to give the censors a seizure. I can tick it. Divorce. Yeah, there are references to people getting divorced. Contraception. Definitely. Dolly retrieves something from the drawer before they have sex, so condoms do appear obliquely. Then menstruation. No, not at all. Blasphemy. Well, there's no religion of any kind in the book. No one seems to go to church at all. Oral sex. No, as I said, not explicit about the sex acts. Then there's graphic violence. No, violence is much more implicit. It's bubbling along under the surface, but there doesn't seem to be any outbreaks. And finally, queer content. Absolutely. Donovan is a central character. He might be in the closet, but he is queer. So Martha Quest scores 10 out of 25 that's pretty respectable. I did not expect it to be so high. I do think this is the first novel I've read with so much transgressive political content. Lessing weaves her character's personal sexual lives into the big social issues of gender, sexuality and race. It's really very good, challenging on all sorts of levels. I can't say that I fell in love with Martha as a character because she's hard to like. You won't be rooting for her the way you do in a coming-of-age novel where you desperately want the teenager to win. But she's a fascinating creation, full of contradictions. This novel is definitely worth reading, but I don't think you'll be surprised to hear that. I mean, she did win the Nobel Prize in 2007. We all know she's a talented writer. So next time, I'm turning to an Irish author, Sean Fóillón, His novel Bird Alone was blacklisted in 1936. He was also a loud critic of censorship. He campaigned against it when it was deeply unfashionable to do so. I kind of wonder if he was censored as punishment for speaking out. But for fans and haters of Cork City, the real capital of Ireland, the O'Fueloin episode is a must listen. Bird Alone is almost offensively Cork, Maybe that pissed off the censors as much as the sex. Till then, keep your hands squeaky clean and your minds in the gutter. Planning for your next trip?